This is R.J. Rushdooney, Easy Chair Number 356, February the 5th, 1996. One of the problems we face today is very similar to that that faced the United States 1930 on, the problem of work. Jobs are declining in numbers. People are unemployed. What to do? Well, I'm going to turn rather briefly to a book by a Harvard professor, Juliet B. Shore, S-C-H-O-R, The Overworked American, The Unexpected Decline of Leisure. Her perspective is definitely not mine, but the book is all the same a very interesting one because she calls attention to what has been happening, namely that Americans, the most productive people in the world, have in recent years become even more productive. Now, in recent years, there have been an occasional years when our productivity for one reason or another has fallen off. But apparently it is increasing. Then there is another factor. She feels that because the productivity is increasing and most Americans are really working longer hours, even though they technically are not, they're working eight-hour days, when all the extra time they put on a job is counted in, they're working much longer than their fathers. She cites an interesting thing from the Depression, and I quote, When the Kellogg Company made their historic switch to a six-hour day on the 1st of December, 1930, They were searching for a strategy to cope with the unemployment of the Depression. To their surprise, they found that workers were more productive, on the order of 3% to 4%. In some departments, the pace had picked up even more. According to one observer, 83 cases of shredded whole wheat biscuit used to be packed in an hour under the eight-hour day. At the time of my visit, the number was 96. The workers who were pleased, preferred the quicker pace but shorter hours, and management was well pleased as well. According to W.K. Kellogg, the efficiency and morale of our employees so increased, the accident and insurance rates are so improved, and the unit cost of production is so lowered that we can afford to pay as much for six hours as we formerly paid for eight. He goes on to, or she rather, to call attention to other things which uh, call attention to similar results. We can digress, uh, although she, in a sense, does also briefly refer to it, uh, to the Middle Ages. The Middle Ages was a time when men did not work as many days in a year. Of course, 52 days, Sabbaths. Then they had uh, about 100 days that were saints' days, and there was no work. And yet their productivity was quite high so that having the rest they did, having as many days off as they had, they were still uh, remarkably productive. Uh, Dr. Shore gives some data on the uh, contrasts over the uh, centuries. It was in the 1840s to uh, about 1860 and in some areas beyond that, much beyond that, that men worked the longest hours. 
Dorothy's father as a railroader worked every day without any days off and the days were originally very very long days and it was only when he was near retirement that the eight hour day became uh, routine of course the railroad workers forced other extremes and shortened the length of a trip that uh, work crew could take so from being overworked they went to being underworked for high pay well over the centuries the workload has not been uh, helped by increased hours longer hours do not make for efficiency and so Shaw feels that there is a strong case to be made uh, for uh, shorter hours or for some kind of change she calls attention to the fact that in the medieval period a working day stretched from dawn to dusk 16 hours in summer and 8 in winter however this did not mean that they worked all the time and they very often uh, because of saints days put in dramatically fewer hours in a year in fact she quotes uh, uh, James E. Thorold Rogers who when I was growing up was regarded as one of the great men in the field of labor studies uh, who said uh, that the medieval workday was not more than eight hours. The worker participating in the eight-hour movements of the late 19th century was simply striving to recover what the his ancestors worked uh, by four or five centuries ago. So, if Thorold Rogers was correct it means that the medieval worker did not work long hours. He worked fewer days, and yet he was productive. So a case could be made, uh, Shore feels, that the American worker is overworked. Let me uh, cite something else she says, which is on a different subject, but very, very important. Debt. Most people are working hard to pay off debts. In fact, uh, Dr. Shores, a professor of economics, says, and I quote, for a single person who owns a house that is paid for, 30000 or even less may be enough to finance a perfectly comfortable middle-class life. Well, I think she's very conservative in that statement. Think about it for a moment. She said a single person. But when you consider that uh, most couples now are paying, in uh, many of our urban areas, 1500 a month payments on their houses. More? All right, Douglas, I stand corrected. 23 to 2800 is average. Well, I'm out of touch. My this is in the data Bay area. is about 15 years old. 2300 up in many instances. Mm. All right. If they had no such debt, they could live on a dramatically lower income. So what is uh, governing our economy today is not the needs of the couples, but their debt. And they cannot take a month or two months without work. I recall, uh, oh, about 25 years ago, or earlier, earlier under Johnson, there was a recession for a time. 
and we lived at that time in the San Fernando Valley at the West End, first in Woodland Hills and then in Canoga Park. In those days, there were a vast number of aerospace plants all through that area. When the layoffs began, and the recession was not more than six, eight months, in short order, houses were being foreclosed and were up for <coughs> sale. Because those engineers who were making big money, they were well-to-do, were living hand-to-mouth. They had all kinds of uh, recreation vehicles. They had uh, expensive vacations. They were living as though their fat salaries were going to continue to uh, go on indefinitely. So if we removed debt from the scene today and people lived as they once did, five-year mortgages only, one-fourth down, people would be able to get along on much, much less money. Well, Paul, would you like to make a comment on that, or do you want to wait a minute well, or two? I, I think that if you had more available income, and say you had a five-year mortgage and you sold off, excuse me, you paid off the mortgage at the end of the five years, you would probably bid up the price of other properties to acquire another property because your expectations and your ambitions would always be a function of how much you could put on the table. I, mm -hmm. the, the other thing I was thinking of is that I think many people nowadays are, uh, as you say, they work to pay their debt, mm -hmm. uh, but if uh, they didn't, didn't have a problem of income, they wouldn't work. But the, mm -hmm. the problem is the exchange of the labor for dollars and then translating that into an investment and so on. Many people at the age of 50 now are saying they don't want that. And they stop and they reflect. They sell off the houses, as uh, Mark said, in California and move to another state where it isn't so expensive and are willing to take less in the way of income. But I look also at the people who work. I see You speak of productivity. <clears throat> I'm wondering if people who as they get older, their productivity increases, of course, because mm -hmm. of their learning curve movement. But I'm wondering if these people who move forward in terms of years uh, wouldn't like to walk away from the learning curve, perhaps, and go into something fresher, because they get sort of jaded doing the same thing over and over. They want a second career, a second lifestyle, so to speak, to kick in. It's forced on them. In today's workplace, uh, you don't stay in the same field very long. <clears throat> I mean, nowadays, uh, young people coming up have to plan as part of their career track that at least, uh, at least once, at the bare minimum, and probably at, uh, more realistically twice during their, their working life, they're going to have to change careers totally. You know, this idea of... Uh, of apprenticing one way or another into a particular trade and going to work for some large company and collecting the gold watch is a myth of the past. Yes, it's it's right. not happening. The the, uh, the the anthem of the wage slave middle class, uh, however few of them are left, is uh, exemplified by the bumper sticker that says, I owe, I owe, it's off to work, I yes. go. Uh, you know, we have a debt-driven economy. I mean, yes. if people paid everything off, this country would collapse for a while. Um, the only pe the only reason people, a lot of people work is to maintain uh, an unrealistic, uh, a lifestyle of unrealistic expectations, uh, which is driven by television. Uh, I mean, it's no longer magazines and newspapers That's anymore. Right. Uh, young girls grow up today wanting better than what their mother had yes. in the way of furnishings and, and all of the accoutrements of, uh, of maintaining a home. And the day after they're married. And they, they want it right now. Yeah. That's right. They want it immediately. <clears throat> if you, when I first went out to Asia, that would have been uh, 
oh goodness, in the middle part of the 60s. I remember I came into Hong Kong and the American expatriates were working five-day weeks. That's what we were expected to do. But the locals worked six days a week. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, gee, that's a tremendous work. And some of them would every other week flip over and do seven. So you'd have six and then seven, and then you'd do six and then seven. And I, I couldn't understand how we could get these people to work that way. And then I started looking at things we did for them. And this was true not only in Hong Kong, but even more so in Japan. On these di- and the day started at 10 o'clock and would run until 8 o'clock in the evening. And I, I observed, though, that one, we paid for their transportation costs. Uh, they didn't have to pay for their car fares or trolley fares or anything like this. Uh, secondly, we paid for their lunches and their dinners. Uh, in some instances, we even gave them places to take naps uh, where they had like little rest areas that they could go to during the day. We didn't get... Uh, in effect, ten hours a day of labor out of these people, and six days or seven weeks <coughs> worth of work. It was modified. And when I started looking at, at how the effective time spent on on tasking would compare to what we do in the United States, uh, I could see that what the Americans were doing was more labor intensive mm-hmm. than what they were doing in Hong Kong and Japan in, in these extended hours and extended formats. So I think, as you say, when people had less work in terms of time commitment, they were able to get greater output. And I see that happening with the Americans versus the Asians that I saw in the 60s, and I think it could happen again today if we had even shorter work weeks. Yes. Uh, Eric uh, Kunert-Ledin, an Austrian economist and count, some few years ago called attention to the remarkable productivity of Americans as against the rest of the world, that uh, some peoples in Asia who worked 14 hours a day could not equal in productivity an American's eight-hour day. You know, they don't utilize technology the way that we do in order to get that kind of productivity. Mm-hmm. They don't have the technology available in many cases, and even if they did, they don't know how to use it. Uh, although they, in the past 20 or 25 years, they've learned how to use it, and they they have uh, beat us at our own game mm. in automobile manufacturing and shipbuilding and electronics uh, manufacturing and a number of other areas. Mm. There's also the matter of uh, what do we offer to the employee that makes them productive. Henry Ford popularized the the automated assembly line for automobiles and it became a a standard of you do one thing and and punch it out and that's an efficient way to create automobiles but it's not as we know now an efficient way to treat employees. It's a killer of men. And um, uh, some years ago I remember seeing um, a a news show and it was about the uh, I believe it's called the Lincoln Company. They make welding equipment, and it's somewhere back east. And it, it, the gist of it was that it was one of the most it was one of the most antiquated factories in the United States, but it was probably amongst the most efficient because they didn't pay uh, wages. It was all piecework, and they were employees were paid for how much work they got done. And you had to take a test and actually perform work duties to see whether you qualified to work there. There was quite a competition for these jobs. They had to have a sign forbidding any employees on the floor before a certain hour in the morning because they would get there early, try to get there too early because they could get that much more work done because the more work they got done and the more taps they actually got done, the more they got done. So that nobody got the same wages. They got it according to how much they got accomplished. You will never find those kinds of examples given in... Uh, any kind of a classical treatise like this mm-hmm. uh, lady here because uh, you know it, it points up that incentives is yes. what drives people and I would find at the expense of Rush getting an angry letter or two I would find the opinions of a Harvard professor highly suspect because they are protected by tenure and the 99% of them have never held a job in the competitive workplace uh, where as many teachers, uh, particularly in the public school system, uh, they don't have to produce. They don't have to produce a product. They don't have to produce an educated child. 
uh, they just have to show up for work and and do what they're told. You know, present the lesson plan that they're told. And uh, so I, I would find the opinions of you know someone in that kind of a situation a little suspect who's not been out in the workplace themselves. Well, education is a good example of an area where they are the experts, and because they're doing it according to what the experts say, they're doing it right. Oh, and the results yeah. don't have anything to do. They're 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 doing the right things, and the theories prove that they're doing the right things. But the test results are. Well, these kids come from broken homes, and and we can't control all the factors that go into they their education. It's social problems yeah. that are they're bringing to the schools with them. That, that that's why they're not learning. They're masters at finding excuses for their own incompetence. And uh, results, we don't hold people accountable for results and for productivity. And I I think more of that's coming back <coughs> as companies are downsizing. They're get getting rid of some of the dead wood. And they're trying to, to to cut things to the bone where this is what we essentially need to get this job done, and we're going to get rid of the extra people. And, and this, a lot of this downsizing is the fact that they're finding a lot of their employees are not productive. They're not really accomplishing what they need to accomplish to produce a finished product. Well, technology is is in the process of eliminating the assembly line. It virtually has already completed that in the automobile industry and the electronics industry because everything is computer-aided design with the purpose of computer-aided uh, production uh, techniques. And uh, right now, for instance, I sell products that are made by Motorola. Human hands don't touch them. When I send an order in for a, a pager, for instance, set up in a particular way, that information is, uh, the order is typed typed uh, into a computer and a box comes out the other end. Nobody touches that product and it comes out custom made exactly the way you order. Mm -hmm. And automobiles will, in the future, will be produced that way. It's you true. will order an automobile uh, with the color, etc. all of the stuff that you want. There will be no more of this. The dealer decides what options you're going to get because, mm -hmm. you know, that's the best deal for him. You'll order automobiles based on what you want. That's right. And it's coming very quickly. And oh. it can all be done with computer-aided <coughs> So the, the drudge work that, you know, Henry Ford started is uh, really a thing of the past and has been. The, and really the Japanese were the ones that pushed us into it because they were the first ones that come up with the robots to make cars. I don't know what the behavioral theory was when you did your doctoral work, Rush, but when I did my doctoral work, we had these classes in behavioral theory that uh, you look at how people view their work as hands-on, blue-collar type people versus people who are management who are not hands-on. And I was thinking, you mentioned Lincoln Electric. Now, that's out of Cleveland, Ohio. And uh, it's not uncommon for welders there to pull down eighty to dollars to $100,000 a year. And that's very high wages for a welder, uh, to bring it mm -hmm. to definition. Uh, those people, I don't know whether they have so much a strong identification with the company, although I, I know they're very jealous of their jobs, and as you say, they come in early to try to get their profitability up and so on, because they're viewed as individual profit centers, so to speak. But if you, uh, something I look at that showed the, the, the real truth of this hands-on mentality versus management versus people who are equity holders, just three classes. And uh, if you looked at Taiwan, <coughs> When Taiwan developed a stock exchange and began to have a surplus of capital in their trade relationships, and this occurred about 19—get uh, my years straight now—they keep, keep running by me so fast. But it would probably been about 1985. You started seeing Taiwan just being a tremendous tiger. Their stock exchange gets started, and you have millionaires occurring overnight uh, from investing in shares. They couldn't find people to work in the factories. Mm -hmm. No one had any interest in a product. They had no identification with the old company. They were an individual profit center, and this time, instead of welding, they were playing shares. They were they were investing in the market, so mm -hmm. to speak. So I I I think that in terms of the worker mentality. Uh, We've, we've forgotten that, that people don't work for the glory of the man who owns the company. They work there because they have debts to pay and so on. And as long as there's a overlap in interest between the people who work and the people who manage and the people who provide capital, things proceed. And once they slip apart, uh, you find people wanting to move to Oregon and quit working the heavy-duty work schedule <coughs> they have. 
We find managers that would rather go out and golf rather than sit in the office and figure out how systems flow and where the problems are. And you find people with capital becoming very, what should I say, uninterested in the plight of their managers and workers. Everything has to come together. That's a Christian concept, I believe. That there, there is a contribution you made by each person, mm-hmm. and each person is rewarded accordingly. Harmony of interest. Yes. Yeah. So uh, we talk about this work thing here. I, I don't know if the Americans are overworked so much, or they're just out of kilter with uh, a religious harmony and equilibrium there. It's interesting the religious, uh, the harmony aspect. That's a uh, seems to be uh, something that the Japanese embraced. And it came from uh, a fellow from the uh, University of Chicago. What was the name he was? A fellow with quality control, then? Well, he, he, they have an award in Japan in his yeah. honor. I, I forget his name. He's well known. Oh, do- yes. Documented I, I know from your Documented his uh, uh, contributions to the Japanese uh, industrial industrialization after World War II. He went over there and... and uh, taught them the harmony of interest concept mm-hmm. and they embraced it a hundred percent where everybody from the bottom to the top in the company uh, has to get together and solve solve problems there's no vertical uh, structure uh, to their uh, hierarchy and their uh, management system well you know we've talked about the contribution of debt to uh, Overworking, I think maybe we can't forget that it is rivaled also by unconscionably high taxation. Yeah. People have to work a number of months out of the year simply to pay off federal, state, and other taxes. We have uh, too many drones in the hive. What's the problem? I'd like to call attention to uh, something else that Dr. Shore has to say in this book on Americans and work. Uh, let me quote we live in what may be the most consumer oriented society in history yes Americans spend three to four times as many hours a year shopping as their counterparts in western European countries once a purely utilitarian chore shopping has been elevated to the status of a national passion shopping has become a leisure activity in its own right Going to the mall is a common Friday or Saturday night's entertainment, not only for the teens who seem to live in them, but also for adults. <coughs> Shopping is also the most popular weekday evening out-of-home entertainment, and malls are everywhere. Four billion square feet of our total land area has been converted into shopping centers, or about 16 square feet for every American man, woman, and child. Then she goes on to say that shopping is no longer confined to stores or malls. You have uh, shopping by television, shopping by phone, mail order catalogs, uh, toll-free numbers, computer hookups, and so on. So that even shopping by automobile, you can have hookups so that you can continue shopping that way and learn uh, what's available so that uh, shopping has become the most popular leisure activity in the United States and she said as a result uh, national parks museums and so on now have a shopping center which is something uh, fairly new. They did not exist before. They have them also now in England, I know. But at any rate, <clears throat> this statement too. Americans used to visit Europe to see the sights or meet the people. Now, born-to-shop guides are replacing Fodor and Bidecker, the travel guides, complete with walking tours from Ferragamo to Fendi, even island paradises where we go to get away from it all are not immune. Witness such titles as Shopping in Exciting Australia and Papua New Guinea. So that uh, 
gaining possessions, uh, shopping for the sake of shopping, shopping to see what is on the market, what other people are buying, what is the newest in anything, clothing or furniture or uh, gadgets and the like, has become a passion with an increasing number of people. So uh, we are working to buy things. I don't believe that phenomenon rush could exist, at least not in the extent to which it does now, without the debt economy that we have. Yes. Plastic money, credit card, <coughs> impulse yes. buying. Yes. People used to have to think a little bit Absolutely. longer about what they bought when they had to part with uh, whatever their currency was. Uh, people from Europe come over here and they want to go to the shopping malls. But shopping malls are failing. Um, the reason is they're not safe. You have to have a bulletproof vest and a bodyguard to go there. And as an economic venture, in particularly in urban areas, shopping malls are failing because people don't feel safe there. They're also expensive. Dis now it's, dis it's discount buying is the in thing now. That's right. Well, you know, we go through waves in our economy. Let's face it, you look back over the past... 30, 40 years, and you know we've all seen waves. The, the super stores now we have the mega star stores, the Walmart. You know each one of them comes up with a little bit different wrinkle. Walmart became the the uh, the, the friendly uh, uh, super store, but if you go in there and look around, uh, you find in many cases that you cannot find the quality level that you're willing to invest your money in. You find out you have to go to some neighborhood guy over here who's got. You know, a decent pair of shoes or something else that's not made out of plastic that looks like it'll last for more than a couple of weeks. Yes. So people are beginning to, you know, because of our economy, mm -hmm. uh, the uncertainties in our economy, they're beginning to shop for more durable products at, at all levels. Regard, you know, it's not just coats, durable goods, or what they call durable goods like washing machines and, and refrigerators. It's a, a good <coughs> pair of shoes. Yeah. And most shoppers don't calculate the time and the gasoline cost and add that on to the price of what uh, they go to purchase. Well, they, they were willing to discount that because of the experience of seeing all of the products in one place yes, because that, that was a new experience. That was unique. It was like going to a fair or an exhibition. You could walk down row after row of different types of shops and see all of this stuff. And it was kind of a substitute entertainment. You knew you couldn't buy everything there, but it was fun to go look. Well, now it's it's not as safe as it was to just go look. And people are pushing, you know, they're working longer hours. They don't have the leisure time to go spend walking around malls. You know, the mall concept goes back probably 25, 25 years. Well, things have changed since then. You know, both uh, man and wife are working. Uh, they're bushed by the time they get home. The energy is not there to go hiking around a mall looking for something. There's a new psychological classification of the compulsive buyer. Uh, these people who get depressed, you know, and go out and spend money to get rid of their depression. Uh, that certainly is a modern phenomenon and is generated by this heavy consumer orientation which is driven by a debt culture and debt society we were talking well, about. Well, some of that goes to more basic elements like gluttony oh, yes. and, and envy. You know, you want to keep up with the Joneses, you want everything mm -hmm. the guy next door has got, whether you can afford it or even need it. Yeah. Well, these I, all are all, all go together, that's for sure. I think you're right about the credit card and its part in all of this. I know that uh, prior to World War II, Anybody who bought on credit, anything except a house, was regarded as somehow a suspicious character and not to be trusted, living on the margin. By and large, it was only the very wealthy who had charge accounts. And uh, it was looked upon with contempt by the average person. It took a while for the credit card to catch on. And I think it was partly because the way things developed, you were driven to it. Mm 
to illustrate, I uh, threw away and burned, in fact, all the credit cards that were sent to me in the early years. I didn't want them. But after a while, I had to have them because with the traveling I do, more and more hotels and uh, uh, other things were not expecting accepting checks. Well, you can't you can't rent a car without a major credit card. Yes, so I was driven to using uh, credit cards. Well, it's a it's the ultimate form of inflation. Yes. Because the government doesn't have to account for how much money is in circulation anymore. And it's a, it's a neat sleight of hand. That's an interesting point, uh, because it points to something fundamental in the analysis of inflation. I have talked to all kinds of people, and I found that there are Ideas, including some who should know better of what inflation is, uh, are wrong. They see inflation as uh, an increase in the price of goods and deflation as a decrease. And that's not true. Inflation is an increase in the money supply. Absolutely. And all you have to do is to pick up a Wall Street Journal and look and you will see day by day the increase in the money supply. Yeah, but the, the rest of that sentence is so that government can pay off its, inf- it, its yes. debts and inflated money. That's right. So that... Uh, That's the purpose behind it. Inflation is created by the federal government, and uh, as a result, we're all paying the price. It, it's another form of taxation. It has to be recognized Definitely. as such. Well, it's stealing, and it uh, helps debtors and harms creditors. And uh, who's the biggest that's debtor? That's ex- exactly. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so it made me think of yeah. that a minute ago. Follow yes. the money. That's right. Absolutely. <laughs> you find the purpose. Yeah, people need to recognize what precisely it is. It's stealing. Yes. It's theft. But well, you know, I want to carry that point forward <clears throat> that you've all brought up now. <clears throat> Having been in the banking industry early on in my life and what I saw was that once we started getting economists becoming having an impact on the presidential office, uh, the presidents couldn't get too much sometimes out of the Federal Reserve System because these were all stodgy bankers. But the one area they could work on was the banking controls uh, through the the legislation. Mm-hmm. I mean, now we're seeing banks being able to do so many things. If you recall, after uh, the depression, banks were restricted. You couldn't sell insurance. Uh, you couldn't sell shares. You couldn't do all many things. But now, if you notice, in order to keep the good times rolling, you can't imagine the contribution that debt through the plastic makes to the money supply. Mm-hmm. And the things that I've seen happen are that one, we've relaxed the constraints upon banks in areas that they can conduct business. Secondly, we've never seen a decline in the interest rates from these 19% levels when there's every reason to believe they could come way down. We're talking 6% money now, 7% money. The reason is because a president needs a banking system that will help, I believe, his prospects in elective office. And that, if he can't work with the Fed, why not work with the Fed? That's why consistently every presidential election year the Fed loosens interest oh, rates yes, as yes. they have just done within the past week or ten yes. days. And that's really insidious. And I think the American public should look up to those things and say, hey, wait a second, this is more than a political process. It's my pocketbook. And let's focus in on taking care of my pocketbook rather than your political futures. Have you seen anywhere discussed how the the billions and billions of dollars of bank losses uh, from the savings and loan industry were repaid. All you got to do is take a look at the spread between the interest rate that you get paid on a savings account or a checking account right now, which is about one point something percent, and those 21 percent annual percentage rates. 
that's where they're raking it. Yeah, that is a little suspicious. I hadn't thought of yeah. that. That's a good I point. mean, they're they're the the good old taxpayer. It's an, it's a, it's another form of hidden taxation that's that the right. government has allowed the interest rates to right drop there. into the stellar cellar, yeah. and nobody seems to have figured it out. And right. nobody knows, you know, how the, how's this enormous debt, this five hundred billion or whatever it was they predicted it was going to be, and they've just announced that they have. Uh, they have uh, overcome the, the losses from the savings and loan debacle ahead of schedule. Amazingly, <laughs> ahead of schedule. The American people just sopped it up. Got <laughs> zapped in the shorts again. Well, I'm glad I brought that foot up. Yeah. I, I like that. <laughs> I was going off another thing. That you were talking about consumer credit. When I went into Japan with uh, the bank I was working for, which was a major American multinational bank, uh, Japanese did not have personal consumer credit. For instance, if you went to buy a refrigerator, and many people in Japan wanted refrigerators in the beginning of the 1970s, mm -hmm. they saved up their yen and then they bought a refrigerator. But they didn't put it on a few pennies a day plan or you know charge it onto their MasterCard or whatever. So the bank came in and it was an area we thought would be very lucrative. And so we requested permission of the central bank in Japan to issue uh, consumer loans through a Japanese bank, and we, in effect, would handle the paper and have some profitability on it. And that was a, an uphill battle for a while, because the Japanese government was not really sure they wanted to develop consumer credit. And now I'll carry you forward a few years with that. Once we put it in place, uh, it became very popular for everything from refrigerators to travel to the United States and Hawaii and what have you. I mean, the Japanese now love their credit cards. Yeah. as much as any American does. Mm -hmm. But they now have some of the highest failures on credit cards. Just as in the United States, we have a lot of people that are succumbing to, to credit cards and then not able to service the debt. Japan has the same thing. That was, that was one of the big arguments I remember in 1970 when they said, we don't think we should give this because they won't be able to handle it. They'll just keep spending it and spending it. And by golly, it came about. They've solved the system beautifully with a socialized credit system for those that don't pay, the ones that can pay higher rates. Pay for them, yes. Yeah. That's the reason you get the 21% APR is you're paying for the defaults. Mm -hmm. It's not that the money is that expensive. Whenever you have a system like we have in the United States of consumer credit and it does not exist in other countries, I think it's prudent to think why do we have it and they don't? And does it really lend something to our quality of life or, or our purpose if we do not have it or if we do have it? There's conditions. Which one is better and why? And then contrast it to what they do in these other countries. And when I see what they've done, I'll give you another country where we did the same thing. After we succeeded in doing it in Japan, we went to the Philippines and the bank introduced consumer credit there. And uh, that has been a real zoo. But I'm sure that you know everyone has worked things through. I, I don't mean to say that the banks are taking advantage of, of consumers in these countries, but credit is a heady mix. And if people have never had it, or if they're new to it, and young people are that way coming into the market, mm -hmm. it can significantly increase your money supply. And once you get that money supply up, <coughs> you get inflation. That's good for the government, because now they can pay back with cheaper dollars. And there's a lot of reasons why people in government in a government like ours, might very well like that. And perhaps it's not the right thing, though. You need to remember, too, debt is slavery. Therefore, a debtor culture is a slave culture and is very vulnerable to blackmail and all sorts of other enticements. That's something that we need not well, forget. The word credit comes from credo, I believe. A man of credit was a man who was trustworthy and believable in everything he said and did. Word is his bond. What? His yes. word is his, his bond. Word is his bond. But now, credit means the ability to contract debt. And you hear these advertisements. Don't worry if you've uh, just been through bankruptcy. Your credit is good with us. And they, of course it is, because if you've been through bankruptcy, it's seven years before you can... Uh, go into bankruptcy again, and in that time, they'll hold you to your debt. The reason is uh, they learned from the experience of Sears and Roebuck. Sears and Roebuck had something called a revolving charge. 
and it meant that you never paid off the debt. They kept you on a merry-go-round. You kept charging yes. stuff. They were and, one of the first to do that. And in you know yeah. the the principal people didn't even care what the principal was anymore, and they didn't even care what the interest was <laughs> because they had never had any intention of paying the thing off. As soon as they got a little room at the top end of the of their account, they would go buy something else, and they would keep that uh, charge right up to the hilt, just like people do with credit cards today. Uh, keep the charge card right up to the hilt, and they never intend to pay it off. Mm -hmm. They see the monthly payment as just like the payment on a car. They never intend to own this thing, even if they, you know, if they're out of work, well, they'll come and get it, you know. But at least I've had it for a little while, and. It, this revolving charge thing was a merry-go-round of credit that people never got off. That explains why someone I would prefer not to know has usually fifteen to twenty thousand dollars that he owes on his credit cards mm -hmm. and never pays. Well, the the uh, that is uh, he never pays it off. The, the bottom line of this is that Sears and Roebuck, the reason Sears and Roebuck got into trouble was that they were running their business on the basis of making more off of the interest than they were making in profit on what they mm -hmm, sold. Mm -hmm. And there are a lot of major uh, uh, merchandisers, you know, mm -hmm. Kmart and so forth that went under. All of those people that had credit, revolving charge credit systems, have all risen and fallen because... Mm -hmm. They got away from merchandising, and they got away from handling quality merchandise, and uh, uh, they were they they were simply in the credit business. They weren't in the merchandise business anymore. You know something that you and I talk about, Rush, and I'd, I'd like you to, for the benefit of the listeners, is when you speak about how workers are burdened when they're coming out of school by their debt. Work, uh, workers are burdened when? when when young people come out of college. Oh yes, oh, oh, yes. This is one of the most evil things that we are doing. The student loans. First of all, it does not cost uh, $35,000 to go to these quality Ivy League schools. Uh, I'm dubious about their quality, but that's how they're regarded. The colleges and universities get together and fix the prices. And if you're in the top uh, level, you get thirty, thirty-five thousand on down to the lowest level, and they are told five thousand. Now, not many can pay that kind of money. Neither the students nor their parents. So this necessitates. Stuart, uh, student loans. A student winds up owing a tremendous amount of money for his education, and he's going to spend the rest of his life paying it off. A very, very fine uh, young man on our mailing list. Uh, I thought at first that he might be related to you, Douglas. But I asked him if he knew you and were related, and he wasn't. At any rate, he was planning to go to medical school and to specialize in a particular area of medicine. He found that to go through school in terms of today's prices would cost him 350000 He would be the rest of his life paying it off and he said, it isn't worth it. I don't believe in debt. So he did not go to medical school. Well, all these students are going to be in debt for the rest of their life. So they get out of school. They have huge payments on their school loans. They buy a house and they have the immense loan that you referred to, uh, uh, what was it you said? Twenty three hundred to twenty eight hundred is the average in the Bay Area. In the Bay Area, San Francisco, twenty three to twenty eight hundred a month. Well, add that together, and you have an enormous sum. It brings to mind one of the uh, movies 
from the early Depression years was, I believe, a Cary Grant movie. And he was a debonair, young, rich man. And the girls at this nightclub were talking about him. And uh, I said, oh, he's good looking. And he's filthy rich. He makes all of $5,000 a year. Well, in those days, that was big money. And the difference today is taxation, inflation, and debt. And that's what's destroying this country. That's right. It's going to be paid for. It's going to take the country down the tubes. Well, the government has squeezed just about all they can get out of people. Uh, and historically, when taxation gets to the 50% level or greater, then there's a change in the, in the government, or at least in the form of government. And people, uh, a lot of people think that what this will happen in this country, this country will split up into regional economic... Uh, yes. Some have said nine regions. Yeah. Uh, some, for instance, in the northeastern part of the United States will probably go with Canada uh, because it's not going to work after a while. We mm -hmm. can't support the debt and we can't support the rest of the world. Yes. Uh, we can't, as a matter of fact, we're not paying our debt to the United Nations, which I find interesting. Yes. We were paying it all at the start of it. Now we're not paying any of it. Yes. Well, our time is nearing an end. Would each of you like to make an additional statement? We have time for it. I, I just have a short comment after what you just said, Rush. I, what I see is that God's law and the statist law are in conflict here. We see physicians or anyone that has to borrow to get through school having the option of denying the debt by bankruptcy or what have you once they finish their education. But the people who actually pay for their school loans are the people out there. Mm -hmm. it's, it's a denial of an obligation that you incurred. Mm -hmm. I, I, and the, the government encourages it, permits it, yes. allows it to happen. Well, all you, all you have to do, the formula is very simple. If you don't want to work so hard or uh, overwork yourself, then uh, lower your expectations a little bit. And, uh, uh, you know, live, live a little more uh, uh, frugally and uh, you'll live longer. <laughs> Another solution to this problem we didn't have a chance to talk about is what the Bible teaches concerning the Sabbath. Yeah. God does have answers to these problems of overwork, and one of them is the Sabbath. Hmm. Well, regarding that, uh, in the Bible you started talking about how uh, men used to have uh, holidays, and if you look at the, the biblical principle, one year in seven was a Sabbath year, and every 50th year was a year of jubilee, so you'd have at least once in your lifetime yes. probably where you had two consecutive years where you went without work. Then you had various religious festivals throughout the year, uh, in addition to the weekly Sabbath, of course. So they had a great opportunity to rest. It was, and people look at uh, God's commandments and uh, any talk of biblical laws, oh, you don't want to impose that on us. Well, it sounds like pretty good to me. <laughs> yeah, I command you to take a rest. <laughs> Where do I sign up? <laughs> you could have a Sabbath year and a Jubilee year every 50th year, every 7th year a Sabbath year when you are not a debt economy. True. We don't appreciate how costly debt is for society. Well, our time is up. Thank you all for listening, and God bless you.